0: Welcome, welcome friends to Theology Untap. Um, we are glad you are here with us. Uh, as a reminder, you can post questions in the comments at any time and we'll be able to see them and we'll, we'd love to respond as we're able to respond. I know it takes a second for this to pick up and folks to get live, so I'll say that again in just a few moments. But my guest for this theology UNTAP, I'm really honored to have um, a professor from my old college, uh, Karmalekche Somo. Uh, Dr. Somo is a renowned scholar of Buddhism and especially Buddhist feminism. And this is part of an ongoing series where we've talked to religious leaders in a number of different religious traditions. And I'm really glad this is. We're going to wrap this series up today because uh, we Christians have to then jump into Holy Week, and so. Um, I'm grateful that you were willing to be a guest and to come talk with me. So thank you, Dr. Sombo for being with us.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: And I like to start, I, I warned you ahead of time about this question, but I like to start with sort of the reverse of the Krista Tippett question. And Krista Tippett always asks people about the religious upbringing of their childhood and feel free to include that in any way you'd like to. But I'd like to ask about your place in religion today um, in an interreligious conversation, I think it's interesting to ask, you know, where do you find yourself in the religious landscape? A lot of times I say of America, but you find yourself on an international religious landscape. So I'd love to hear your response to America and internationally. Where are you in the religious landscape?
1: Oh, well, um, it's a really interesting landscape. Being here in Hawaii, we're very much a multicultural society, multi-religious society. And so I do identify as Buddhist, um, but I was not born Buddhist. So I, but I've been Buddhist since I was a kid because my family name was Zen,
0: mm. and then
1: so I got into Buddhism when I was very young, and I just, I just resonated with it and kept going. Over the years, I think since the '70s, we've had an interreligious dialogue here in Honolulu, and of course around the world. And I find it so vitally important that if I can play a role while trying to represent the Buddhist view of as well as I am able to do, then I also like to find points of contact, both consonants, you know, resonances and differences so that we don't just elide the differences or pretend they're not there so that we can understand each other better. So I really enjoy these conversations and um, hope they will continue around the world.
0: Yeah, it's been really interesting for me to um, to engage folks. I, I think we've got a number of leaders here in St. Louis that I've had a chance to talk with who have engaged in protest. Um, St. Louis has been a locus of the American protest movement over the last six years since the killing of Michael Brown. Uh, and before even Ferguson, I some of my college memories are of you and some of the Catholic sisters and running into you at Iraq war protests. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about um, what it is as a, you know, visibly Buddhist um, person being on a Catholic campus, what that is like, but also what it means for you as, and your Buddhist practice uh, to be in such an environment. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think that um, it's really a tribute to the Catholics, at least at the University of San Diego, that they dared to hire a visible Buddhist. You know there are plenty of closet Buddhists around, and I've found them since I've been there. But uh, to be visible, to be public about your um, identification as a Buddhist, trying to be a Buddhist, we could say. I remember one Catholic priest said, trying to be a Christian. I said, okay, I'm trying to be a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been very open-minded, especially my department. There's a lot of respect for different perspectives, different points of view. And I, they've even asked me to lead meditations and give talks in the Immaculata, which is mm-hmm.
0: the you
1: know, church on campus. And uh, I've never had anyone breathing down my neck telling me what to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone recommended that I not talk about abortion, but I completely ignored that because I think we have to talk about it. Yeah. And um, in general, everyone's been very warm and friendly. I must say, and I hope that I've been able to contribute to interreligious understanding through my Buddhism classes and also World Religions, Death and Dying, and other classes. Mm-hmm.
0: I I'll never forget listening to you talk about. Um, it was it was formative for me in terms of the way in which a religious tradition makes certain demands and requirements on us in terms of identity. Um, mm-hmm. I remember you talking about, because before you were a nun, you were a surfer, right? Right. And, right. and can, uh, will you tell the story about asking your um, superior about the possibility of still surfing or still swimming?
1: Oh, right. Yes. When I was just about to get ordained, I asked um, a, a high Tibetan lama who was here in Honolulu, starting a center, if I could go swimming after I was a nun. And he said, oh, yes, of course, if you're saving someone's life. And it actually happened one time that I took two Tibetans to the beach who told me they knew how to swim. But the second one just went, dived in and went, globe, And I had to dive in and and, uh, rescue him. So um, that was, it's an example of adaptation, Hmm. you know. Um, how we represent ourselves. People expect us to be so holy and and to be. I mean, truthful. When I arrived on the campus, I I made a a pledge not to swear on campus because I was too visible. <laughs> yeah. And I tried my best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Most <of> <laughs> <time>. <laughs>
1: probably
0: not to swear on campus when you're I. I, no. That's interesting, because I think for me, I, when we were, before we went live, you remarked it's the first time for you seeing me in a collar. And I think, you know, when you're when I'm wearing a collar, I become aware of it, but I, I'm more noticed when people catch themselves around me. I don't know if you have that experience, yeah. too, where they just yes, start apologizing.
1: <laughs> yeah, they'll apologize for lighting up a cigarette or saying a swear word or something like that. And sometimes they'll come up and can start confessing to, mm. to in the parking lot about infidelity or, you know, what they've done in Vietnam or something like that. Wow. And so we do have a responsibility, a role to play. And, of course, on the USD campus, there are not that many Buddhists, but sometimes they do come, especially ROTC. Mm. Um, not only Buddhists who are enrolled in that program, but others, too, who are having some kind of a conflict. Um, about their commitment to peace and their commitment to war uh, or whatever it's. So this is part of it. Um, I do remember when I came down for my uh, interview at uh, USD. Well, actually, I did the interview on the phone and a priest asked me, "Would I feel comfortable with so many Christians around?" <laughs> I said, Of course, some of my best friends are Christian (laughs) and um, because here in Hawaii, one of my closest friends is a Dominican nun Mm. um, wearing the penguin outfit (laughs) and we go everywhere together and have so much fun. And, and people notice because uh, you know, they'll sort of click and put us on Instagram or something because this kind of dialogue, friendship, interreligious friendship is also so important. I mean, like many people say they have black friends, but black people don't have, the numbers are different, yeah. <laughs> right? So friendship is vitally important to um, a peaceful world.
0: Yeah, I so I wonder if I can, I, as an Episcopalian, I, you were one of the first people, and you said you didn't say this term to me, I must've learned the term later, but who talked about friends of yours that were Buddhist Episcopalians. Yes, that's true. Um, and since since we had that conversation, I, I heard the term Buddhapalian, which, I, you know, sort of a portmanteau of those two words, which is funny and, and interesting. But I I wonder what you can say from a Buddhist perspective about... um I, I've got a good friend from seminary who wrote his thesis on what he called multiple religious belonging or folks who are on multiple paths. But from a Buddhist perspective, you know, is there such a thing as a Buddhist Episcopalian? Or what does that mean?
1: <laughs> right. Well, um, it, it's a common term in religious studies now, dual belonging, we hear mm. most often. But multi-religious belonging will also work. And um, it's quite common, actually. And for the, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, we don't have memberships anyway. If you want to call yourself a Buddhist, well, we hope you behave properly. But, you know, there's no one to, controlling this um in in the institutions are basically based in the monasteries and they're functioning virtually independently so if um a person but more importantly it's not about the the label the idea is if there are things in buddhism that are useful then please welcome to to take them and learn them and apply them if you like um the, the Dalai Lama has actually come out saying, don't change your religion.
0: Hmm.
1: If you're a Christian, be a good Christian. If you're a Muslim, be a good Muslim. If you're a Jew, be a good Jew. Um, but he also says that if there are aspects of Buddhism that are meaningful for you and useful, and they you know the ethical guidelines are quite clear and and helpful, or uh, the meditations are. Uh, I think everyone needs to calm down these days, right? So there are lots of good skills that the Buddhists have to offer. The teachings on compassion, you know, everyone talks about compassion, but how do we develop it on a practical level? What are the steps? You see, what are the practices that will make us more compassionate people? So I think this is most important. So when people talk about being Buddhist Episcopalians or, You know, here in Hawaii, we have people who go to, you know, they go to the Hindus on Monday, the Sufis on Tuesday, the Buddhists on Wednesday, Calvary by the Sea on Thursday. um, And they love it all. And when we planted a Bodhi tree last year at our new peace center here, we had prayers in eight religions. And and that's not uncommon. When people do house blessings or baby blessings, they call us all. (laughs) And so we all pray together and we all respect each other. So, I think this is really a nice way of doing religion.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, in so many ways, Hawaii has often been the forefront of multiculturalism. I find that fascinating. How about I remember when it was not long after I graduated, but um, I came back for uh, when Technot Han came to USD. And I know that, you know, he and Thomas Merton were good friends and supported one another's causes. And so there's a long history of Tibetan, or uh, he's not Tibetan, of of, um, of monastics from Buddhist traditions and Catholic traditions being in close contact. But he's also of a different tradition within Buddhism than you are, correct? Could you speak about that?
1: Yes, he's a Vietnamese peace activist and poet. An artist calligrapher yeah who's had a, a huge impact i think on the world he's written over a hundred books and he has monastic communities that are open to lay people as well lots of programs for children and so forth so he writes books like pieces every step i'm using it in my class this semester every semester and um you know present moment wonderful moment and things like this is a very simple presentation a, a very meaningful, especially in terms of applying these uh, high ideals to our everyday life. Mm-hmm.
0: But it, so he but he teaches in a different lineage of Buddhism, though, right? Correct.
1: A Vietnamese tradition, and it's a, a Zen a Zen school of Buddhism emphasizing meditation. But what's interesting today is it's not only interfaith, interreligious. There's also so much ecumenical dialogue. So previously, Buddhists didn't have that much contact with each other because they were spread out all over Asia. Transportation communications were not as they are today. And so it's in the last 30, 30, 40 years that Buddhists have actually started coming together and exchanging views and exchanging prayers and um, exchanging ideas about social transformation, working together. So I think that many of the teachers also have trained in more than one school of Buddhism,
0: Mm.
1: especially um, American teachers, North American teachers have actually not just dabbled, they've seriously practiced in more than one Buddhist tradition. And some of them, many of them were also born Jewish Mm. or Christian. So they also have a a multi-religious background.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's a, in my congregation we sort of joke that our sister congregation is the reformed jewish congregation in the city the central reform congregation that we've got some folks that spend saturday there and sunday mm-hmm. with us and sometimes that's because of marriage sometimes it's you know one partner is uh, grew up jewish and one partner grew up christian uh, and sometimes that is you know people that do have multiple religious belonging or or uh, you use a different term that uh, like dual religious belonging but it's an interesting.
1: I could even say that I never stopped being a Christian. Hmm. I, I love Jesus and I love what he taught. And I really try to practice it. I have utmost respect for, his, for him and his teachings. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, my path led me a different direction, maybe because of my family name. But for me, um, so many of the basic principles are virtually identical
0: hmm. and
1: if we lived them we could call ourselves either a christian or a buddhist and it would it would work yeah.
0: I, there's a ongoing discussion within christianity and particularly within sort of the wisdom schools or contemplative schools of christianity that talks about buddhism um and sometimes It's interesting because I I got my good USD education and was involved with some of the ethnic studies uh, work that was early when I was a student there. Um, We won't talk about how long ago that was, but uh, that some of that initial conversation, the sort of uh, Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating and the folks that really get involved in contemplative life within Christianity are learning from folks like Thich Nhat Hanh or Chunru Suzuki and folks who bring Buddhism to California and other places in the United States. I wonder though about that. Sometimes it gets uh, Buddhism might get romanticized or almost caricaturized um, from folks in uh, North America and Europe around, you know, that what what Edward Said talked about the, the idea of the sort of magical East or the magical Asian religion. Do you think that, that plays a role in the encounter of Christians and Buddhists?
1: Well, from my experience, it's usually quite sincere. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the religions get characterized in a sense, you know, because we want to look at the positive principles. Um, Hawaiian spirituality, for example, too, we can fashion it. As we wish, in a way, in, mod- in the modern day, we have that freedom. Now, I don't mean just dabbling or appropriation on a really superficial, you know, sort of tacky level. I mean real practice, picking up those values that are most meaningful. Mm-hmm. So I think that can definitely work. Um, yeah, it can definitely work. And I, did, um, I didn't have the fortune to meet Thomas Merton, but I did meet Father Thomas Keating one time when he spoke here in La Jolla. Uh, here, I mean, over in there. La Jolla, yeah. over there. And um, honestly, if he had not used God language, I would have thought he was teaching Buddhism. Hmm. You know, he when he talked about standing in the presence of God in his Centering Prayer Tradition, it was very similar to being in the present moment, the present moment, wonderful moment that Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. So I was really, really impressed with and how he's, and he managed to stay within his own tradition. But then we have to realize that he had been engaged in 20, 25 years of uh, contemplative dialogue up in Snowmass,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Colorado. And so he had been in an intimate dialogue with Buddhist monastics for many years, and he practiced uh, Buddhist contemplative practices during those years. So, but that's a perfect example of this um, this constructive exchange Mm. that I think is really positive. At the same time, of course, we cannot elide or, you know, whitewash the differences. I'm not saying that at all. And His his Holiness Dalai Lama has been very clear about this from the beginning. We want to be friends to the point that we don't have to pretend we're not, that there aren't differences. There are very real philosophical differences. And we're not looking for some sort of big blob religion here. Uh, It's, uh, you know, we have to be, I would even say, precise about but then it's complex because there are many different Buddhist traditions and they don't all agree, and, but that's the fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it can be fun until it's not fun at times. I think um, I, we, we mentioned briefly, but uh, having both been in Catholic contexts and now living where I live is a city that's very, very Catholic, it was difficult last week when the Vatican made the pronouncement they did about same gender marriage. As a non-Catholic, I felt like I needed to put forth a, I'm really glad that the Vatican doesn't speak for me often. Um, But I wonder if that's not also true in the Buddhist world at times, that something happens and you think, I'm grateful that that's not my particular family today, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, No words on that one. I mean, it it is, but of course you know we have to be careful of and and recognize also that he does not speak even as much as we all I think love and respect Pope Francis. Um, he his doesn't speak for all Christians or even all Catholics at all. So on this point, you know, we could beg to differ, and I'm sure that there are certain Buddhists who either privately or publicly, I and mean, look what's going on in Burma. Yeah. We have this nationalism on the rise in Burma and Sri Lanka, and it's so embarrassing. And and they're not open to dialogue. I've tried. <laughs> but it it's um, really disappointing. Um, in, I mean, really, seriously, disappointing in that it conflicts with some of the basic principles that we've come to know and love about our traditions, about, you know, Children of God, uh, or everyone has Buddha nature, or you know some some really basic stuff, mm-hmm. and then to imagine excluding anyone on on the basis of any identity marker is you know, it's not just silly; it's seriously majorly disappointing.
0: Yeah, it's that's one where it's, um, and I wonder if I could ask you specifically in a moment about. Uh, God and Buddhism, because it's a the most recent conversation I had was with uh, an, a humanist ethicist, atheist leader of the Ethical Society here in St. Louis, who's a he calls himself an evangelical atheist in the sense that he thinks that everyone should be liberated from this idea of God, but Buddhism is one of the traditions when we get into interreligious dialogue that i think most effectively pushes back against that blob religion you were talking about like it's all the same god and then the buddhists go wait wait a moment wait a moment so what is how does how does the buddhist tradition interact with the idea of atheism or theism or the existence of god well
1: basically the the existence or non-existence of God is not a Buddhist issue the the Buddhists are concerned about suffering and the end of suffering if someone can work to end suffering and believe in God good on you know that's that's fine and that's why dual belonging is possible at, at least from a Buddhist perspective um if, if it's meaningful for you and I'm, I'm in dialogue with a lot of Hindus who also, you know, it, it's very trendy to say, well, we're all going up the same mountain. We're all going to get to the same place. No. We're going to get to different places because if you want to go to heaven, you hopefully you'll get to heaven. If you want, you know, liberation, um, hopefully you'll attain that. If you want perfect, you know, awakening, well, hopefully you'll attain that or, you know, inner peace or whatever your goal is. Um, but, it's just simply that the the Buddha probably did not flatly deny the existence of God. But I mean, after all, there were three hundred and thirty million gods in India, and he often referred to them. You know, he mm-hmm. uh, he actually asked for protection for the for the practitioners from the gods who they saw as being all around us. It was part of the cost, you know the cosmology. Um, if the giants flatly deny the existence of God because they say everything has to have a cause. And mm-hmm. if, and even God, as a causeless cause, would have to have a cause, and then you have an infinite regress. But that's not the Buddhist view. Those, some Buddhists may agree, but mm-hmm. the Buddhists didn't teach it in that way. No. The idea is that we're responsible for t- taming our minds, uh, purifying our minds, Trying to eliminate greed, hatred, and ignorance. Mm-hmm. And this is the main thing. To be a more compassionate, wise person. It's it's really not the Buddhists are not so concerned about belief. Mm-hmm. In fact, or maybe concerned about action.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's something that I've heard a number of, you know, as, as Christianity encounters the end of its time where it's the assumed religion in a in society, right? That there's a lot of uh, going on in in the conversation about whether Christianity is reached this new epoch where we're, uh, we can no longer assume that everybody born in Christendom is going to be Christian. There's a lot of identity struggle going on. And one of the more positive conversations I've heard around that has looked at Buddhism and has said, well, one of the reasons why buddhism may be on the rise in north america and in western europe is because it presents itself as a way of life more than as a system of belief it's not so much you sign on the dotted line that these are your ideas but that you attempt to as you said you know you 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 try to be a buddhist you it's about your practices
1: right
0: Could I ask you about the the practices that are meaningful for you in your day-to-day, week-to-week life?
1: Yeah, sure. I think that meditation is very important. And, of course, there are many different kinds of meditation, sort of an infinite variety of meditation techniques that we can draw from. So I particularly like meditation on breathing, or we can Mm say mindfulness of breathing. It's very basic. And there's also mention of mindfulness of breathing in Christian documents, namely the Philokalia. From what I understand, I haven't um, read it, but in fourth century document, you know, it seems like at one time they actually did mindfulness of breathing. So then we have lots of meditations on, let's say, loving kindness and compassion. And then we have meditations on the teachings themselves. These would be more like, contemplations, more like the Ignatian, you know, sort of um, reflections,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we actually take a, a concept such as suffering and reflect on it, true or not true. Mm-hmm. You know, law of cause and effect, true or not true. It's The idea is that we don't just swallow it, but we check up through our own experience to see whether some of these ideas make sense or not. And if they make sense, using rational arguments, um, logical thinking, if, if they make sense, then we can accept them. But there's no catechism, you see. There's no nothing we have to believe. Hmm. We need to discover for ourselves, you know, the idea of suffering and the elimination of suffering. If by getting rid of anger, we're a more peaceful, happy, and kind person, that speaks for itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that idea of the practice, you know, is itself validating. It, it is itself shows you what it is. The other tradition from Buddhism that I have found a, resonates a lot with folks is the tradition of taking refuge. Um, huh. and, mm-hmm. and the idea of, um, you know, rather than just signing up and saying, I believe these statements in a creed, but that Mm -hmm. need in a way, you know, that the teaching, um, the community that, I mean, as a community leader, I find that an important part of, you know, a lot of times when people say like, why would I join the church? I will say, well, you know, from the Buddhist tradition of, you know, like taking refuge in a community, um, it helps. Can you talk about the role of the community in Buddhism and what it means to take refuge?
1: Right. Good question. Well, I think that can, I agree with you that community is very important. As we see now during the pandemic, people are trying to maintain their their meditation practice on their own and finding it quite difficult. Frankly, that mm-hmm. when you could get together even once a week or hopefully even every morning, then you have this kind of support system. Mm-hmm. But when you're on your own, just it's just you and the screen. Then it's a little bit. Hard to keep it going. So that's the value of community. Um, Traditionally, the refuge formula is to take refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, and the Buddhist community. Mm -hmm. Um, Early on, that was considered the monastic community because they were the ones who were trained and educated in the teachings of the Buddha. So the idea is that you take the Buddha as a teacher and the Dharma as the teachings, uh, and this is your path to liberation. Liberation from all the the defilements of the mind, all the mental afflictions, emotional, you know, turmoil, right? And so, and then the community helps support you. So they even use a medical analogy: that the Buddha is like the doctor, the Dharma is like the medicine, and the Sangha is like the nurses who help you know how to take the medicine,
0: hmm. right?
1: Help help you out with that. So, um, but today uh, it's not only the monastic community. We have lots of uh, lay teachers, some excellent lay teachers also. There have always been lay teachers, mm-hmm. but in traditional Buddhist societies, they sort of privileged the monks, <laughs> male, yeah. um, primarily. And this is all changing today.
0: I want, yeah, I'd love to, I'd really like to get into that because I think it's a, you have become, um, You know, renowned in the circles of Buddhism specifically for lifting up the voices of women, not just in your scholarship, but in your practice. You've helped found a couple of communities that specifically support the rights of Buddhist nuns. Could you talk a little bit about that work?
1: Well, I didn't know about um, Paragon or something, but I'm definitely a troublemaker. (laughs)
0: And, uh, John I mean, Lewis, that's a good thing. Society
1: needs, yeah, it's an important job. Somebody's got to do it. Um, to in the beginning, to point out that we had a, a problem here in in the Buddhist uh, in Buddhist societies was not really welcome in in many um, venues. And even today, I think there's still some a lot of conservative um, thinkers in the traditions um, who don't accept you know women as full participants in the tradition. Fortunately, you know, the Buddha himself admitted women into the Sangha, into the monastic community, starting with his own stepmother, who was his aunt, biological aunt. And by admitting her, and she became a leader who then led thousands and thousands of women to live a spiritual life. And so we we can always hearken back to the Buddha himself as having started the order of nuns and uh, of giving teachings to women and uh, have, of having affirmed that women have the capability to achieve liberation. And this is very important. So we got off to a really good start. But over the years and even during the Buddha's time, you know, certain pa- patriarchal patterns continued to arise Um, I mean, one day he even found a nun passed out because she'd given away her lunch to a monk. And he said, no, 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 no. (laughs) I mean, nuns also have a right to lunch, you know. So um, sometimes women internalize these feelings of inferiority or unimportance or lesser capabilities. And that's been part of our work. So we started with, um, I started with a literacy program in the Himalayas, up in Dharamsal, where the Dalai Lama lives. And that blossomed into a full-time study program, which now has 12 campuses around India, um, mostly up in very remote Himalayan regions, where Buddhism is still very strong. And also one in in the village where the Buddha got enlightened. So um, then we started to discuss and recognize that, in fact, this gendered... um, imbalance was not just a problem in the Tibetan tradition, it was a problem in all the Buddhist traditions. And I would include the North American traditions because, you know, if we keep our eyes open, we do see discrimination or bias, um, well, everywhere, um, I could say. But it's certainly improved. By working together, we created an alliance known as Sakyadita, Daughters of the Buddha. And we began meeting in 1987, um, and thank heaven we did. You know, what if nuns, Buddhist nuns in the world today were still illiterate? How embarrassing would that be? Mm-hmm. So by having started this movement and um, building friendships across, across the lines of tradition, and we welcome men and monks to the conferences and people of all religions. We've always had an interreligious um, dialogue as part of these conferences. So today the situation is much, much better. And some nuns in the Tibetan tradition have even uh, achieved the highest degree in philosophy, which was never available to them before. Mm. And women are starting, you know, shelters and schools and retreat centers, and they're doing research on women's history, which had been sort of ignored. And they're publishing and they're teaching and doing wonderful work. So it's very heartwarming. Mm.
0: I was—I wonder, as you talk about women's literacy, immediately after college, inspired a lot by some of the liberation theology I um, got to study at USD, I went and spent a year down in Honduras. And in Honduras, there's a saying that when you teach a man to read, you have a reader. When you teach a woman to read, you educate a village. Uh, And I wonder, have have you seen an effect like that as well? Have you seen women getting engaged in, you know, have you educated villages in that sense?
1: Yes, I think we could say that there has been a lot of progress, but there's still much more to be done. Um, The idea, you know, the monasteries have always benefited the community. They've been the the clinics, they've been the schools, they've been the shelters, um, old folks' homes, orphanages and all of that. But I think there's more, much more that can be done in terms of bringing, um, bringing about the welfare of the wider society. Usually people come to the monastery and learn there. But now it's time that the monastics need to move out. Mm-hmm. The Dalai Lama has been saying this for decades. And even he said to become lawyers and doctors and, and so on. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, I think in this sense, North American Buddhists in, and this movement of social engagement, um, they've taken very seriously the work of people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who was himself a peace activist in Vietnam in the 60s and had to leave the country because um, he got in trouble with both the local authorities and the American authorities, and he had to leave. So this idea that, that Buddhism isn't just contemplation in a cave somewhere, it actually, um, the real value is in bringing it to the people, and not just the teachings, but a total transformation of society. And it's being articulated more and more. I think it's very, very helpful, very, very important. So that brings Buddhists sort of on the front lines of these new discussions about social justice. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes, you know, many of us do march, often hand in hands, with our Christian Jewish Hindu brothers and sisters, and being visible, I think it has an impact because, you know, even the San Diego Police Department called us up and asked us to be, you know, to come down to, mm. um, you know, because there was uh, word that some white supremacists were coming down to Chicano Park to destroy the murals. Mm. So they contacted us, the so-called religious leaders, to come and be a presence there, not mm-hmm. once, but twice and in both places both occasions, it was peaceful. Mm. So um, that, that's a, a good example, I
0: think. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, we, our experiences here in St. Louis have been not quite as collaborative often between clergy and police, um, so that's a wonderful thing to hear. Uh, I would wonder about this, um, um, you, you being a troublemaker, and I can't help but you've mentioned the Dalai Lama a number of times, but. I find him to be, he's also very good friends with a a leader in our tradition, Desmond Tutu, and both of them have the capacity to create some good trouble, I think, um, on the world stage. But he said something that I've always wanted to ask you what you thought of it, because I think he said it after uh, you and I saw each other very often, which didn't, did he say that the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama might be a woman? Did I?
1: Um, He said it could be.
0: Okay. He said it
1: could be. yeah, first of all, you know, he and Bishop Tutu are tight buddies. Yeah, I mean, Bishop Tutu was so upset that the South African government did not give a visa to the Dalai Lama to attend his birthday party because they didn't want to offend the Chinese, right? That's, that's so often the case. But um, His Holiness has said that uh, he would take whatever rebirth would be most useful for the people. And this is typical of... So sort of the bodhisattva idea, one takes rebirth intentionally, deliberately, in a place where they can be of most benefit. Mm-hmm. And so, and in whatever form would be of most benefit. And he said, if being born as a woman would be most beneficial, he would be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. But he said, if people don't listen to women, what would be the point of taking a female rebirth? So it depends on the needs of the society and even I mean, what is most important for that particular society? Um and even are they really ready to hear the wisdom of a bodhisattva? You know, if if um let's see. Let's see.
0: Yeah. I I just found it, I mean, I, I find a lot of things that I, I quote him often for saying something along the lines of you must know the rules well so that you can break them properly. Um, but I find that the Dalai Lama tends to do that a little bit, that he tends to say things that will give rise to at least heavy thought processes. Or I, I love that you've, you've thought through this and, and the way that he's, but I, I find that really interesting, like a way to support feminism is to say, well, what if, you know?
1: Well, you know, he jokes a lot. He jokes all the time. And he's even gotten in trouble for some of his jokes that hit the front pages and so on. But um, also, a lot of quotes are attributed to him that he never said. Hmm. Like there's one about, you know, the path to happiness. And it ends with, you know, pursue love and cooking with wild abandon. And you know right away that didn't come from the Dalai Lama. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> right?
1: but it gets passed around every few years it, go, it makes the rounds of the internet again mm-hmm. and and to the point where i even checked with his office and they said no no he didn't say that but all these things just keep getting circulated so it's um probably better to go to his oh, writing yeah. but um he, he's also done many talks now with the pandemic one silver lining is that his website has all these wonderful teachings on it mm. with English translation, sometimes translation into 40 different languages. So wow. there are many opportunities now to hear it directly from him his, himself. Mm-hmm. And you will find that he jokes, but, um, but he also, you know, he follows the rules, but he also like, where's the baseball camp, right? Which mm-hmm. is not traditional. <laughs> and, um, And sometimes holds hands or even hugs a woman, which is not traditional at all for a monk. But you know, um, so I think he sort of deliberately sort of um extends the envelope just a bit to so that people recognize that he's he's very human. But you know, in the 50 years that I've known him, I have never once seen the slightest inkling of self-concern in this person. I mean, he thinks 24 seven about the benefit of others, mm-hmm. which is the mark of a bodhisattva.
0: That's mm-hmm. the
1: commitment of a bodhisattva to think only of others.
0: I mean, and, and know that there are a lot of people that don't know that term bodhisattva. What does bodhisattva mm-hmm. translate that? Well, a
1: bodhisattva is someone who's working to become a fully awakened being, namely a Buddha, right? Um, to become a fully awakened um, being is a huge commitment that takes a long time to achieve. But after achieving, or even as in the state of uh, being a bodhisattva, one's life is completely dedicated to the welfare of others through generosity and, you know, modeling ethics and practicing patience and, you know, joyful effort and contemplation, wisdom, all these practices, um, they are constantly working for the welfare of others to try to lift all beings out of suffering. Again, back to this central, you know, aim
0: mm-hmm. the,
1: the bottom line of Buddhism is to alleviate suffering. It,
0: it is, it's a, such a, it, it, it is interesting the way that the resonances come with Christianity, you know, this, this idea of, you know, when we think about who Jesus was and just his daily encounters with folks, um, you could map that idea of the bodhisattva—the the lack of concern for self, the consistent—he's um, known as this healer in a very particular way. Um, but I wonder, as well, how much um, you know. If it there's a there's a quote, and maybe it's misattributed to Gandhi. I think I've seen this enough places, but that uh, Gandhi once said. You know, uh, Christians. I really like your Christ. Your Christians are not much like your Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find it interesting that um, in your own tradition, you've 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 taken a very particular place um, as a professor and as a uh, teacher and as a nun, and yet you found a way to ask your tradition to be a bit more. Buddhist. Is that a fair, I mean, like, or a bit like more how how the Buddha uh, treated women? Is that a fair assessment?
1: Well, I think we can all try to live up to our ideals. Mm. And we can never impose that on others. Basically, we ourselves have to try to live up to those ideals. But I do think that we can point out where there are weaknesses, where there are failings to live up to those ideals. And Jesus and the Buddha both Modeled that by reaching out to the poorest of the poor and ministering, you could say, ministering, right, to those who needed it the most. Yeah. And working with people of all different backgrounds, including women, right, which was very radical for both of them in the societies in which they were, you know, found themselves. And so I think that in a way, um, by reminding people of the ways in which these two model figures lived. Um, You know, it's not an explicit criticism. It's just a little reminder (laughs) that, hey, this is what we're supposed to be about. Shall we uh, try our best? Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, but now sometimes in in cases like uh, violence, this is really hard because power and uh, wealth, and violence often go hand in hand, and they're diametrically opposed to the teachings of both traditions. And yet, how do we try to help address this or reverse this? And it's a huge problem. Christian nationalism in the United States, we yeah. see where that's going. And um, Buddhist nationalism, wherever it may be found, um, these are people who know the tradition, mm-hmm. but they're warping it for their own own misguided ends. And this is the biggest challenge for both traditions, as I as I see it. And that's why we need women. That's why we need the help of all our human resources, you know, if we're working on just one cylinder, then we won't have the same impact, the same potential to, to transform society. If we have if we help to educate and empower uh, women, Then we're working on both cylinders, and then we can really move forward. This is my honest uh, view and hope for society. And that's why Christian and Buddhist women and Jewish and Hindu and all the rest working together is so powerful. Um, And that's been happening in many different ways at the Parliament of World Religions and in panels at USD and around the world where women from different traditions speak in, in dialogue together about specific issues where women can and, and must help make changes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a, a wonderful place to sort of start to bring our um, conversation to a close. I, I do, I think amplifying the voices of those whom some of the, parts of the tradition have not traditionally amplified, helps the tradition be more fully itself. And I I love that image of that. It helps the tradition be able to encounter the world in a way that the world really needs it right now. Um, That's a, I'm always impressed by how, when folks of different faith traditions uh, talk about their own tradition, uh, the resonances can really help us to understand, you know, it's it's not that we're all in one uh, religious tradition together. It's not that we're all climbing the same mountain or whatever metaphor you want to use. I, I love that, the blob religion. That's, like, that's a great one. But that there are certain resonances, the way that you speak about the Buddha, the way that you point to the Buddha's uh, interaction with women, it also helps us to see for Christianity that despite all of the, you know, build up over the centuries that we've encountered, that if we're able to look back at the way Jesus uh, worked with women and, and interacted with women that he absolutely should not have been by the cultural mores of his day, it helps us to get clearer about that. So mm-hmm. as always, um, Dr. Somo, it is an honor to get to speak with you. Um, I am going to, in just a few moments, I know that we've got a few folks that are watching or who will watch a little bit later that are going to do dialogue on their own uh, on Zoom or on their own um, video chat. I will post the questions for that dialogue among your friends together, but, um, but I wanna finish by saying thank you. Uh, it, is, it is always a joy to be with you and thank you for Zooming in with us all the way from Hawaii. It's lovely to get a view of the tropics from here in St. Louis where we're just at the beginning of spring, so. Nice,
1: wonderful, wonderful.
0: But wonderful. So I hope we can do. all
1: work together. And you're not forgetting those who are not religious as well. We need everyone to work together. So thank you for holding these dialogues so valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Aloha to all of you. Aloha. Happy Aloha.